Our scripture today is from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. You can follow along in your Bible or on the screen behind me. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will be... Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. So good to be with you. Um, I want to say thank you to Andrew Babb uh, for just leading us in song this morning. Thank you to your team, uh, Chuck, Andrew, John. Did I miss anybody that were up here? That was excellent. I love getting to come and worship together with y'all, um, and I appreciate your leadership, brother. I, I mean, we're singing songs that you see the scripture that pops up on the screen in between every, every other verse or chorus. It's just beautiful. And I just feel, I feel nourished before I even get in the pulpit, right, before we open up the Word of God together. So uh, I just want to thank you, brother. Um, and guys, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, as was said. We're going to continue. I made uh, such a silly decision last week to, to bring in an 11-point sermon, uh, thinking that I could preach 11 points in a, a timely fashion, when, you know, every one of us knows that that's just not possible for me, um, so we're, we're at point seven of uh, the 11 points, so we're going to go through uh, point seven to 11. I do want to do a quick overview of points one through six, though, for those maybe who were not here, and even for those of you who were here, uh, just as a recap for what we looked at. And before I do that, I, I want to remind us of why, why did we take a pause on the great book of Philippians and, and go to this passage, and the reason is because I was so, I came under conviction from God that in Philippians 2.16, as we were studying two weeks ago, it says that we are to hold fast the word of life. 
And if you recall, the word of life is the gospel. That's what he's talking about. And to hold fast the word of life is not just to hold on to it and treasure it, but is actually to hold it forth. It is to treasure it so much that you don't keep it to yourself, you extend it to those around you. It's sharing the gospel, right? And so as a pastor, I, I decided to call an audible on the, the sermon calendar, and let's just go to Luke 10. Let's look at how Jesus equipped his disciples to go out and to extend the gospel to the lost world. And so that's why we're here. That's why we're in Luke 10. And so I hope that this morning further equips you and encourages you and challenges you to do just that, to hold forth the gospel that we love and that we sing of, we cherish. The title of the sermon is Sent Out to Usher In, Part 2. It's a reminder that if you have been saved, if God has saved you, He's brought you into the kingdom of God. And he has also sent you out to usher people into the kingdom of God. My first point was that Jesus sent out the 72 disciples intentionally. And I didn't just conjure that up. It's in the text. You look at verse 1. It says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others. He appointed them. He chose them. He selected them. And if you recall, he didn't just choose the, you know, first round draft pick very best. Who did he select? Ordinary people. He, he selected those whom, if you looked at the passage right before, in, in the end of Luke 9, you see he selected those who had counted the cost of discipleship. They were those who counted the cost of following Jesus. They knew that part of following Jesus is inviting others to follow Jesus. And so who were the people that he sent? Who were the people that he appointed? They were those who had sincere faith. They were those who had counted the cost. They were those who treasured Christ more than anything in this world. And they were those who were willing to go out with fear and trembling in obedience to Christ's command. So what do we learn from this? Christ is intentional to save. He is intentional to send. And we must be intentional to go out, or we never will. Got to put it on the calendar. There, there should be intentional times where you go out with a brother or sister in Christ to knock on doors or engage the lost in the city square or the mall or wherever it may be. We need to do this or we never will. My second point was that he sent them out proactively. We see that in verse 1 as well. It says he sent them on ahead of him into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And what's significant about that is where was he going? He was going to Jerusalem. What was he going to do there? He was going to die on a cross to pay for the sin of the world. He sent them ahead of him. He sends us ahead of him. In Christ's second advent when he comes again, not to die on a cross, but to judge the world in righteousness. Judgment day when he comes. That second advent, leading up to that second advent, we are to go out. We are to call people to repent and put their faith in Christ alone before that day. He sent us out ahead of him in that way. Thirdly, he sent them out communally. We see this also in verse 1. It says, two by two. And if you recall from last week, this is not a pragmatic approach 
to evangelism or to gospel ministry. This is a biblical approach. This fulfills God's law. Deuteronomy 19 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And remember, we're not, we're not bringing rebuke to people, we're, but we are bringing a message that is confronting them in their sin, right? So, so we're engaging people, we're confronting them with the reality. You've sinned, you've fallen short of the glory of God. And also, here's the good news, God has responded in kindness by sending Christ. And if you'll turn to him and put your hope in his righteousness, you will be saved, you'll be forgiven of your sin. So it fulfills God's law to go in twos because there's two witnesses that are bearing witness to the fact that someone has committed a crime. They've broken God's law. They're also bearing witness to the good news that Christ has fulfilled God's law. He's not a criminal. He died on a criminal's cross, on your cross and mine, but he was not a criminal. A perfect life, blemishless life. Going out in twos matched God's design. Genesis 2.18, it's not good for man to be alone. It reflected God's wisdom. Ecclesiastes 4, two are better than one. It was practiced by all of the apostles. For reference, go read the book of Acts. Just all of it. Because <laughs> you're going to see they, they went out in pairs everywhere. So in summary, evangelism, the Great Commission, it is communal. We're sent out communal, communally. It's a group project, community endeavor. We suffer rejection and we celebrate acceptance of the gospel, not in isolation, but together. Praise God. Number four, Jesus sent them out expectantly. Look at verse two. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. What does that mean? It means that there are plenty of people out there who need to hear the gospel before Christ comes again. Matter of fact, Everybody needs to hear the gospel before Christ comes again. We're to go to all of the earth and preach the gospel because everyone is in need of it. There's no one that is righteous and, and not in need of God's mercy that is in the gospel. But it also means that there are some people out there that are ripe and ready to hear it. They're waiting on you to share the gospel with them so that they can repent and put their faith in Christ alone. You remember the illustration that was given, the avocado? That avocado, when you open it up, and it's the rare moment where it's just, it's ripe and ready. It just scoops right out so easily. There's people that are ripe and ready. The harvest is plentiful. Our role is not to know who's ripe and ready. Our, our role is not to know who are God's elect children that will respond positively to the gospel. Our role is to go and to preach the gospel and trust God with the results. And he promises that all the lost sheep will be saved. Number five, Jesus sent them out prayerfully. We see this in verse two as well. It says, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, the solution to the problem of not enough labors is to what? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. So we're to be prayerful every Every activity in life and ministry should be saturated in prayer. We should be people that are praying without ceasing. It's just constant communication with the Lord. 
And specifically, an application that, that I brought up last week is this. And this is really, I, I'm urging us to pray this more and more as a church, is this. Lord, raise up and send out more laborers into the harvest. Like, I want to plant churches out of Christ Redeemer Church. I, I want to send out people into the harvest so that more can hear the gospel and, and more, there can be more little communities of, of God worshipers in this nation and, and beyond. We should want that more and more. We should pray, Lord, give me strength and courage to labor in your harvest. And number six, he sent them out cautiously. And this is where we concluded last week, verse three. He says, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. As lambs in the midst of wolves. And if you recall, I, I said that we need to be cautious in two ways. Number one, we are to be lambs. We're to be lambs. Now we're to be bold as lions. We're to preach the truth. But we're to be gentle as lambs. We're to be wise as serpents, but we're to be innocent as doves. What does that mean practically? It means we don't force or coerce conversions. We don't debate anyone into the kingdom of God. The one who's going to convince someone through the gospel that Jesus is Lord and that they need to repent and put their faith in Christ is the Holy Spirit through the word of God that's being preached. So we can definitely persuade with the word of God. We can definitely point them in the right direction. We can definitely say, hey, that's actually an error. Can I, can I show you where, the truth, where, where the, the truth is here in the word? But we cannot coerce or force people to become a Christian. Alongside that, we cannot manipulate people into Christianity by diluting or watering down the message that God has given us, entrusted to us, to herald, right? We're to, we're to herald the message that he gave us. The king gave us a message. We're not to give anybody anything else. Just that message in full. Not diluted. And we're to be cautious in a second way. We're lambs in the midst of wolves. And as you recall, that means that we will face hostility in this visible, physical world that we live in. No doubt. War's going on right now. People suffering and dying right now. But there's also hostility in the unseen world, in the spiritual world. Paul goes so far to say in Ephesians 6 that we don't even wrestle against flesh and blood in comparison to the warfare that is going on in the unseen spiritual realm. Satan and the fallen angels, the demons, that want to divide our marriages, that want to separate us as families, that want to indoctrinate our children, that want to lead us into lies and deception. Satan, if he can't get you unsaved, which he can't, if you're in Christ, you're safe. Take refuge in his armor. But it says in the Bible that he will do all that he can to lead astray even God's elect. We've got to be sober-minded. This is war. We are in war. The war that's going on overseas right now is a spiritual war. It is. It's a religious war. 
So we need to be cautious as we go out. I shared the story with you of the young man that I was discipling in that coffee shop, and I was sitting across from him, and he, I was teaching him through the Word of God, back and forth, the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, meaning that you are made right with God through faith alone in Christ alone. Do y'all remember that story? Okay, here's what I forgot to tell you. After I packed up and I left, and that, that gentleman to my left don't know his name, but he swooped in as this young man was about to leave. What I didn't tell you was this. What I found out three days later from that young man I was discipling was that the guy who came in and was preaching a prosperity gospel to him and was saying, don't listen to Arch. There's many ways to God. God just wants you to be happy and wealthy and healthy and wise. That man was a pastor at a local evangelical Protestant church in Frisco, Texas. Fact. Now, I'm not going to share the name of the church, but I'm just telling you straight up, if you are, are thinking that there aren't wolves out there, they're right down the road. They're in this city. They're in schools. They're all around. Some conscientious, they know they're servants of Satan. Some that are unaware, but they're serving the devil. We need to be cautious. And the only way we're going to know if we're sitting in front of a lamb or a wolf is if we read our Bibles again and again and again and again and again. Because Satan will use scripture out of context. See Matthew chapter 4. He tried to deceive the Son of God. And Jesus kept putting it right back into the correct context, rightly interpreting the Word of God. What makes us think we are less dependent on the Word than the Son of God? The actual, the Word in flesh. We need the Bible, friends, Sunday through Sunday. Number seven, here we are. He sent them out dependently. Look at verse four. He says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. So what was Jesus not saying here? Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. He's not saying you need to go out looking like John the Baptist or uh, some crazy, ascetic, you know, strange human being that's barefoot and overalls and, you know, that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's getting at. And if you, if you look at the other gospel accounts, you'll, you'll understand that he's saying don't pack extra sandals, okay? So he's actually saying, he's commending that you wear shoes when you go out on these evangelistic endeavors, okay? So, so put on your best pair of shoes. But here's the deal. He's saying, don't pack any extra. Why? They don't need it. They just don't need it. Why? God's going to provide. He promised. In, in Matthew 6, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All these things are basic provisions, food and clothing. So he's literally in this short-term mission trip with these 72 disciples at this point in time in history. This is a training ground for them. They're going out with next to nothing but just enough of something, and they're sharing the gospel. And he is saying, don't bring a knapsack. You don't even need a sleeping bag. I'm going to provide a place for you to stay. I'm going to provide the clothes that you need on your back. I'm going to provide enough uh, underneath the, the soil of your shoe. Later on in Luke twenty two thirty five, 35, Jesus said this to those same disciples. He said, hey, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. That's the whole point of this. 
Not only are we going out dependent on God to move in power because we cannot convince anyone of the truth, but we're, we're dependent on the Holy Spirit. We're actually depending on Him through this entire life on earth before the second advent. We are depending on Him to provide what we need to glorify Him and fulfill His mission that He has commissioned us on. He will provide what is enough. There's no U-Haul behind a hearse. What you have is enough to glorify God. Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He was going to die on the cross for our sins. And we are to set our face towards the new Jerusalem because that's where we're headed. You can't bring anything with you there except for souls. Be soul winners, friends. Be the most holy, loving, honest people in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, in this city. Make that the aim of your life, to be the holiest, most loving and kind and gentle and honest person that you know, and you will have glorified God well in your lifetime. You, you are setting yourself up well to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Number eight, he sent them out urgently. Verse four, he says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. There's no time for, for pit stops. There, there's no time for delays. And what's interesting is that it, historical context is this. At this point in time, in the first century Greco-Roman world, a greeting was way different than the 21st century United States, right? When you and I, when we greet each other, even in church, we go, hey, how are you? And just keep walking, right? And we don't, we don't even stop to find out how they're doing. You're just, just passing by, right? Hey, how are you? I mean, you're not wasting any time in those greetings, right? But, but to, at this point in time, so different. Elaborate ceremonies, these greetings. Many formalities, meals. I kind of prefer these greetings. I mean, this sounds good, right? But they're long delays, and Jesus is going, essentially, to paraphrase, Ain't nobody got time for that. I'm sending you out on a short-term mission. And in light of eternity, 80, 90, 100 years, that's short-term. That's what you're on, short-term mission trip right now. And Paul reminds young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.4, he says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And we're reminded the theme in Philippians that we are citizens first and foremost of the kingdom of heaven, right? Not that we're not citizens of the U.S., not that we're not citizens on earth of some nation, but that we are first and foremost citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And so we are not only citizens of that kingdom, but soldiers in God's kingdom, and we're sent out to usher people in to God's kingdom. What are you entangled in? What has Satan, what traps has he laid for your feet? Where has he lassoed you into some unnecessary activities that are preventing you from prioritizing, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? There are so many things that are not sinful that we can do, and, we, and it's, it's not sinful to do it. It's not sinful to watch a ball game. It's just, there's so many things. It's not sinful to knit. You can do these things. But what I'm suggesting is that you put for, first, first things. 
that you prioritize advancing the kingdom of God in your own life and every way that you're able to in this season of life, in the home, outside the home, in your radius of influence, with the people that you have access to, that the people near you in these seats don't have access to. Urgently. So the question that you have to ask yourself this morning that I have to ask myself is, am I urgent? Am I urgent? Number nine. Jesus sent out these 72 with gospel clarity. I love this. This is in verse five through nine. We're just gonna chip, chip our way through this. But it's so, sometimes it's hard. How do I even begin? And, and I know you're sitting there and there's times over the last two weeks where you're going, I don't even know where to start. Jesus literally helps us. He helps us out. Look at, look at verse five. Whatever house you enter, so first, you got to leave your house, right? you got to go out. But then he says, whatever house you enter, okay, now you're getting close to somebody. What are you going to do now? Step by step. First say, peace be to this house. In other words, what he's saying is, come to people as a person of peace. You're coming in peace. You're not coming to, to, uh, to destroy, right? You're coming to heal, to help. You're coming in peace. You're coming from a heart that genuinely loves this person, even though they're a stranger to you. They don't know your name. You don't know theirs. So you're going in peace. And so practically, very practically, when I go out intentionally to do some cold call evangelism, which I, I see I'm commanded to do, um, and I'm going with another brother in Christ, I don't force people to talk to me, but I do engage people. And some people say, I don't want to talk to you. Okay, no, no sweat, no sweat. But this is what I'll say. I'll say, hey, friend, my name is Arch. Uh, I'm a Christian. I'm a member of a, a church in town called Christ Redeemer Church, and my friend, blank, and I, we're out today, we're asking some survey questions to better understand the worldview of the people around us and to share our own worldview. Are you open to, to answering a few questions? And, and I've been blown away, and my friends, everyone who goes out with me, they're blown away by how willing people are to stop and talk about these things. They're curious. By the way, that timed out at 20 seconds, Okay. So, you know, make up your own, but go talk to people. Be a person of peace. You're going in peace. You're not going to destroy them. You're going to help them. It's very upfront. It's very transparent. It lets people know who I am, where I'm from, and what my agenda is. It communicates I come in peace. We're sent out by Christ not to debate and prove that we are right. The Word of God proves truth. See Proverbs verse, uh, chapter 30, okay, 5 and 6. We are sent out to rescue people with good news. And so th there may be a part of your heart that goes, well, gosh, I don't want to inconvenience people today. Y you're not. Like this is, this is the most important moment of their life, you engaging them with the gospel. You're not inconveniencing. They might think that in a moment, but, but that's not the reality. You're to go out. I think the enemy would love to think that we're inconveniencing people by engaging them with the truth. Wow. What a lie. We're sent out with good news. The good news is that there is a way to have peace with God. But did you notice what I said? There is a way to have peace with God. What I did not say is, there's peace with God. So there's a way to have peace with God. And we are to point them to that way. Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. That is an exclusive message. It is salvation exclusively in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
until someone confesses their sin because they're confronted with the reality of their sin by you. And they confess their sin to God and they turn and they trust in Christ. They're still at war with God. There is no peace with God, with them, until that happens. False teachers today preach a message of peace. Now I want you to listen to me very carefully because it's so sinister and it's so subtle. It's insidious. This is what they'll say. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Go read the Gospels. Go read the book of Acts. Come back next Sunday and tell me if that was ever a gospel presentation by Christ or the apostles. It wasn't. Not once. Nothing even, nothing remotely close to that. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel of peace. I want you to listen to this because this has not changed. This is an old, old false gospel. Listen to the, to, to the people of Jeremiah's time. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 11. And in verse 10, because it starts with they. Well, who's the they? Verse 10 lets us know that it's the priests and the prophets of Jeremiah's time. False priests, false prophets. And this is what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 8, 11, They, the false priests, false prophets, have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace peace when there is no peace what is he saying he's saying that people have put a band-aid on a wound that needs surgery and that's what people mega churches all over the globe are doing that they're saying god loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life come on in the water is fine let's baptize you let's get you and you got false converts that are just rampant and i'm going out and with my brothers and sisters in christ i'm having to convince people that they're still dead in their sin because they are because they've not trusted in the righteousness of christ alone they're still trusting in it even a jesus plus me works-based salvation friends this is dangerous and we've got to be cautious that we aren't contributing God have mercy on us if we have. It's something to repent of and, and confess and seek forgiveness from. And then to go out faithfully and to redeem the time that God has given you left to preach a true gospel message. The message of peace we bring is this. Friend whom I love and I just met. You were at war with God because of your sin. Sin has separated you from a holy God. And yet the good news is this. God, in his great kindness, sent his son, Jesus. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin on that cross. The wage of sin is death. He died. Three days later, he rose from the dead, vindicated through his resurrection that he is the only way to God. Justification found in his resurrection. All who turn to him will experience a resurrected, eternal life with God through repentance and faith alone. You can have peace with God. Isaiah 9, 6 says he, speaking of Jesus, is the prince of peace. Colossians 1:20 says that he, Jesus, made peace by the blood of his cross. Ephesians 2, 14, he himself is our peace. Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's true peace. And Jesus Christ says in John 14, 27, peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives do I give. 
Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. If you have put your faith in Christ alone, you have peace with God. And that's not the promise of a preacher. That's the promise of God and his word. They were sent out in peace with a message of peace, and they were to seek out a person of peace. Look at verse 10, or verse 6. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. What's he saying? If the person that you're engaging is open to the gospel, matter of fact, they're even receiving it. They're believing it, and you're watching conviction and comfort mingled at the cross that they're hearing preached. Praise God. That's a person of peace. You know how many people you talk to before you meet a person of peace? I don't know. I mean, the other day, again, I, w- I walked, went out with Jackson Davis. We talked to a few people. The first person was a person of peace. <laughs> I went out a few days before that with Andrew and Andrew. I love bringing that up every time. I got two Andrews, one on my right, one on my left. Both are studs. And we're going out together, and we're evangelizing. And, and it took a, f- a few people, right, before there was a person of peace. There's a lot of people saying, no, I don't want to talk to you. Oh, oh, you're starting to talk about this stuff? No, I'm out. Okay. I'm not going to force a conversation. But there are people that are willing to talk. When you find a person of peace, verse 7 says, remain in that same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house, meaning talk with them. Invite them out to coffee. Study the Bible with them. Pray for them. Pray with them. Bring them to church. Let them sit under the preached word. Now, these people were on a short-term mission trip where they were literally going to live with the person. So Jesus says, remain in that same house, eat and drink what they provide. This is a real person of peace, right? This is hospitality, like to the max. The laborer deserves his wages. He says, do not go from house to house. In other words, these disciples were not to find a person of peace, go, go into their home and go, you know what? Don't love what's in the pantry here, you know? I'm going to find another house, better cook in the kitchen, and, and I'm going to stay there. Twin bed? I prefer the queen, right? No, they're not, they're not looking for better lodging. They're staying where God has called them because a person of peace has been found. So that's how Jesus taught people to engage in evangelism, in peace, with a message of peace, looking for a person of peace. Now, I want you to look at verse 8, because Jesus goes further than than just teaching them how to engage people. He he teaches them how to evangelize those who who are receptive and are willing to hear the gospel message. He says, whenever you enter a town, verse 8, and they receive you, eat what's set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The gospel message of the kingdom of God is the same message that was preached by the prophets of old, by John the Baptist, by Jesus Christ himself, by the apostles. It is the message that we are to preach. We're not to conjure up a new message. We've been given a message. What is the gospel of the kingdom of God? In short, it's this. It means the kingdom of God has come near. It means the king has come near. And he has. He came very near. He put on flesh and blood and bone. He dwelled among us. He tabernacled among us. His glory was like the glory of the Father, veiled in the flesh. He's come near. And they were to say, the king's come near. The kingdom of God is near because the king is near. Matter of fact, he's coming. 
We're here ahead of time. He's coming. That's what we're to do. The kingdom of God has come near. God has established his kingdom when Christ came in his first advent. And he is going to consummate the kingdom of God when he comes in his second advent. He experienced the judgment and wrath of God on the cross for us in his first advent. He brings the righteous judgment of God in his second advent. We are pleading with people. I mean, in tears at times. Enter into the kingdom of God now. How? Through faith and repentance. That's how. That's how someone enters into the kingdom of God right now. What is the kingdom of God? It's not an earthly military rule and reign. It is the rule and reign of God Almighty, the one true God on the hearts of men and women. That's what it is. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's not seen, and yet it is seen. People enter into the kingdom of God through repentance and faith in Christ. They've taken refuge in Christ. Life is no longer about them. It's about Christ, and it evidences itself. Where do you see the kingdom of God? Where people are walking by faith in obedience to Christ's teaching and commands. That's where you see the kingdom of God advancing. And how is the kingdom of God advancing? How does it grow? When the people of God... The citizens of his kingdom, in fear and trembling, go out with the gospel. They preach it, and people receive it. They find people of peace. They repent. They believe, and they enter into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has just expanded. And now the person that was just saved is sent out. And God equips the called every time. Verse 9 is weird. It says, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So what's the application for us? Do we go out and perform a bunch of miracles and heal the sick and the blind and the lame and the beggar? Sure, I'll pray. I mean, I'll pray for those things, but I'm not, I'm not going to expect God to do what I command God to do. This was a very unique point in time in history. You understand that, right? Like God was on the earth in flesh. So what was happening? Christ had given unique authority to the apostles and a select group of others to go out. And what they were doing is they were proclaiming a powerful message. And the power was powerfully bringing dead, spiritually dead people to life. And then it was being evidenced that it's a powerful message through the miraculous works that were taking place. So should we expect all these miracles to go about as we go out? No, we just shouldn't. That should not be the expectation. So what does it look like for us today? It looks like we go out with mercy ministries alongside our merciful gospel message. It means that we might hand out water bottles as we're handing out gospel tracts. It means that we care for someone's body as well as their soul. That's what that means. We don't need miracles. I mean, I, I was driving into church this morning. There's, there's a new pop-up church that's promising miracles, and they're hoping that people will come to this gathering not for Christ, but for what Christ can give them. And I have no idea what their doctrine is. I'm just telling you that that is the attractional model of come here and you might experience a miracle. People are seeking out miracles instead of the Messiah. How backwards is that? The miracle that comes when you come to the Messiah is this. You can get new life. You can be forgiven of sin against a holy and just God. 
You can experience the mercy of God if you come to his Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith. He knew that some people would reject his message through his messengers. And so what did he do? Oh, I just love him. He goes a step further. He says, not only this is how you engage people, this is what you can say to begin, and this is what you can say as people are receptive of hearing the gospel. He actually says, this is what you can say to people when they reject the message that I've given you. And here it is, verse 10. Listen to this. This is my 10th point. They're sent out with courageous honesty. Verse 10. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, can we just back up, and I, I want to remind us of who just said that. Jesus Christ. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, when they reject the gospel message, go into its streets and herald, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet will you wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God absolutely came near to you in this town. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day, judgment day for Sodom, than for this town? What this tells me is that we're to proclaim not only that there's a way to have peace with God, but when those reject, they, they stub their nose, and they look at it, they go, not for me. I don't need peace with God. I, me and God are just fine outside of Christ. No, you're not. And when they say that, we, we are to be honest with them. Courageous honesty is necessary. It is what is lacking in the church, friends. There's no courage in the church anymore. We have to be honest about God's wrath as much as we are honest about the good news of God's mercy in Christ. This is the ministry of the Old Testament prophets. This is the ministry of John the Baptist. This is the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is the ministry of the apostles. This is our ministry. This is what has been entrusted to us. Jesus says this in John 5, 26. The Father has given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And then he says this, verse 28. Do not marvel at this, that he's coming to execute judgment. Don't be shocked by that. There's so many ideas of what Jesus is like. And then there's the Bible. He says, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good, those who have put their faith in the Messiah, they will, they will come out to a resurrection of life. And those who have done evil rejected the only Messiah, Jesus Christ. They will experience the resurrection of judgment. Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, in the church age, now, he commands all people everywhere to what? To, to repent, which is the word that's never used in churches today. Rarely, I should say. Why? Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which who will judge the world in righteousness? Jesus. By a man whom he has appointed. And this he's given assurance by raising him from the dead. You can be sure that judgment day is coming. How? 
the resurrection. That, that is the evidence that there is a resurrection coming. And one is to a resurrection of life for those who have faith in Christ. And one is a resurrection of eternal punishment in hell. And that's to those who've rejected Christ. And we've got to be courageously honest about this with people. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. These are some of Paul's last words to his disciple. He says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Meaning, he's saying, Timothy, I, I'm, what I'm going to tell you, what I'm going to charge you in, I'm charging you in this because I'm accountable to God for this. I'm telling you today, I am charging you in this to preach the true gospel and be courageously honest because I am going to be held accountable to God on Judgment Day for, for doing that or not doing that with the church that I'm, that I'm shepherding. So he says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, not the parts that we prefer, the whole counsel of God's word. In ancient times, I said this last week, a herald that was sent out by a king, if he did not preach the message that the king had given him, that man was executed. And we, we worship and we say, he's the king of kings, he's the king of my heart. Are we being faithful with the message that he has entrusted to us? Or are we trying to dodge and get around the uncomfortable conversations that might lead to our persecution, persecution our mockery, our rejection, our, our being isolated from others? Are we avoiding the, the hard stuff? Are we leaning in and enduring suffering together as a body of Christ? Friends, let's do it together. Let's do it together. When they did it together in the first century church, the churches multiplied. So I'm going to boldly ask you to just do this. Make a decision today. Am I going to be a faithful ambassador of Jesus Christ with the, the remainder of life that I have? Yes or no? And if it's no, don't be one at all. I mean, get, get another day back in your, your week. Sleep in. But if it's yes, I want to come alongside you and encourage you and walk with you. I will, I will schedule time with you to go out and evangelize. We're not to do it alone. But we need to do it faithfully, we need to do it biblically, we need to do it courageously, we need to do it with full honesty. That's what the 72 were to do. They were to go out with courageous honesty. They were to say, listen, we've been honest with you. Even when it made us uncomfortable, even when it put us in danger, we're, we're innocent of your guilt. You've heard the gospel message. You are now responsible and accountable to God for what you've heard. Judgment day is coming. And the door, the timeline, we don't know. But it's coming and that door is closing. It's like in Indiana Jones, that door is just is shutting. And we're to urge people. We're to get, and we're to say, please come now, come now. This is the only way. I mean, people would be blessed to see you weeping on their front porch. Please, will you talk to me? This is so important. How urgent are we, friends? The reality is every single one of us, starting with me, could be more urgent. We could be more courageous. We could be more bold. We could love Jesus more and love the lost more. He moves from speaking in, in generalities of this would be worse 
for a town that rejects me, it would be worse for them on Judgment Day than Sodom. He's speaking kind of generally, and then he gets to specificity. Look at verse 13. This is terrifying. Woe to you, Chorazin. Jesus speaking. Woe to you, Bethsaida. These are specific places. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. So what has Jesus just done? Jesus speaking, again, I feel like I have to remind us of that. Who is this man? Jesus. He has just called out six cities between verse 12 and verse 14. There's three Jewish cities. There's three pagan Gentile cities. Okay? Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, mainly Jewish cities. They presently existed while Jesus was speaking this. Capernaum was like the headquarters of Jesus' Galilean ministry. He spent a lot of time in Capernaum. Bethsaida, Chorazin, they were like small villages on the outskirts of Capernaum. So they had a lot of exposure to what? To his message, to his messengers, and to his miracles. His powerful, unique, rare, strange miracles. Set apart, not normative, (laughs) miracles. And so he's speaking to them directly, and he's going, woe to you three. Why? Well, this is interesting. They had extensive exposure to Jesus and his message. But before I, I get too into the, the weeds on this, I want to I move to Tyre and Sidon and Sodom for a second. These cities that he compares them with and says, hey, judgment's going to be easier for Tyre, Sodom, and Sidon than for Bethsaida, Capernaum, and, and uh, Chorazin. These cities were pagan cities. They were pagan cities in the Old Testament era. They were cities who absolutely were godless. I mean, they were were defined by gross sexual immorality. They were defined by vicious, relentless violence. They were defined by materialism. They were defined by pride and arrogance. These cities, they were prophesied of several times. Tyre and Sidon, there was a a predicted complete overthrow of these cities. In Isaiah 23, Jeremiah 25, Ezekiel 26, Joel 3, Amos 1, Zechariah 9, God is saying, I'm going to destroy them. They're wicked. I mean, this is Las Vegas on steroids. Evil places, full of evil people. An evil place is made up of evil people. That's what, you get that. And he's saying, I'm going to destroy this entire city, these two cities. Well, guess what God did? He did it through evil people. Nebuchadnezzar besieged Tyre, 585 B.C. Alexander the Great conquered Tyre, 322 B.C., completely destroying the city. The Persian king Artaxerxes conquered conquered Sidon. Sodom and Gomorrah, God did that. He rained down fire from heaven. And God, who prophesied judgment, he brought it to pass because he's not a liar. He's, He's telling the truth. He's so honest. And Jesus is being honest here. This is what's shocking. Those evil cities that God did destroy and that Jesus is saying that they will experience a less severe judgment on judgment day than the cities that he had been ministering in in the first century. 
What's shocking is that there's no record of hostility against Jesus in Capernaum, in Bethsaida, in Chorazin. No record of it. They were indifferent. They were apathetic to Jesus. They would have fit in in the Bible Belt. This is a warning for us. They were indifferent to Jesus. Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, Revelation 3, I know your works. Yeah, you know why? Because he knows everything. He says, you're neither cold nor hot. And then he says this with an exclamation point. Would that you were either cold or hot. I mean, accept me or reject me. But then he says this, so because you're lukewarm, you're so indifferent. He said, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, I'll vomit you out. He hates indifference. He hates apathy towards his name. His name is holy. His name is to be worshipped. His name is to be lived and died for. Where are we at? We need, wherever we are, we as a church need to take one step to the right in leaning into faithfulness to Jesus Christ because of his faithfulness to us. He has lived for you. He suffered and died for you. He's risen from the dead for you, promising that because of faith alone, not because of anything you've done to this point, but because of faith alone in him, you will experience eternal life with him. And so with that hope, with that promise, go and live for the king until he takes you home until he returns and don't do it alone do it together let's do it together let's be set apart in this bible belt cultural christianity crockpot let's be holy let's be bold let's be gentle let's love our neighbor as ourself let's be courageously honest there's so many people i i know that there's people even in this room who are going god wouldn't do that he wouldn't destroy people like that, really. He promises that he, that he will, and he, he's proven that in the past. He's going to do that. Romans 2 speaks to you. If you're here this morning, you're going, no, God's, God, I don't like this preacher. God is kind and merciful. I'm going, he is. He's more kind and merciful than you realize. But he says this. He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that his kindness at the cross is meant to lead you to repentance? Be- Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There might be someone in this room who's who's going, man, you know, when when you commit some sin, fill in the blank, whatever it may be. Maybe you watched a little porn this week and you thought, you know, I'm just going to keep watching. I'm just going to binge on and then at the end of the weekend, I'll repent. Saturday night, late before the Sunday service, I'll repent. Please, change your mind. That's not true repentance. That's taking advantage of the grace of God. True repentance is looking at the kindness of God for, for sinners and turning from it in community, bringing it into the light, walking out of it, whatever it may be. 
The reality is Jesus is saying here, and he says elsewhere in the New Testament, that there will be greater and lesser degrees of punishment for greater and lesser sins. And y'all have heard, I'm sure you've, been, you've heard the songs about, you know, all sins are the same, they're the exact same. They're not. Like consequentially, they're not. You, you put a gun to someone's head and pull a trigger, th- there's a consequence to that sin that is different than if you were to curse them out on the highway. Both are sinful. Both will lead to destruction and hell. Both need forgiveness and mercy from Christ. But there's a difference, and there's going to be a difference in hell with the severity of punishment that people experience because of their sin. So if you think, well, I'll just carry on in this. This isn't that big of a deal. I'm telling you, R.C. Sproul once said this. He said, a sinner in hell would give everything he had, do everything he could to make the number of his sins in his lifetime one less. So you, you may be here, you may never respond to Christ and put your faith in him. And I would say, limit the number of sins. It's coming, friends. We need to warn people of this reality because Jesus commanded us to do it. Even though it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me, quite frankly. But with greater revelation of Christ comes greater responsibility. We need to be responsible, not only with responding to the gospel of putting our faith in him, but by extending it to those who have not yet put their faith in Christ. And this is the last thing, point 11. Jesus sent out his disciples, and he sends us out representatively. Look at verse 16. He says, the one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. He's reminding us that he was sent before he sent us. He's reminding us that we are to represent him before he returns. He's reminding us that in our ministries, we're not to get too high or too low. If someone hears you, if they respond positively to the gospel, that's because they heard Jesus. Praise God. If someone rejects you and they mock you, It's not, don't take it personal. It's not that they're rejecting you, it's it's they're rejecting Jesus Christ. It's like in a breakup, you know, when someone says, look, it's not you, it's me, you know? And sometimes they mean it and sometimes they don't. Jesus means it here. He goes, it's not, it's not you, it is me. They're either accepting me or rejecting me. So what are we to do? We're just to be faithful. We're just to be faithful with the ministry that God's given us. And in different seasons of our life, our evangelistic efforts are going to look different. The context of our evangelistic efforts are going to look different. The frequency of our evangelistic efforts are going to look different. And those who have the gift of evangelism in this church, you should be 80-20. You should be leveraging the gift of evangelism as much as you can, right? Those who don't have the gift of evangelism doesn't mean you're to abstain from evangelism. You're to exercise your spiritual gift, but you're also to go out in fear and trembling alongside those evangelists, and you're to preach the gospel. You're to see the power of God move through weakness and fear. It's neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. It's God who gives the growth. Our role is to go. God's role is to know who's going to respond in faith. Husbands, fathers, practically speaking, lead your families with the word of God. Keep a Bible open somewhere in the home at all times. Multiple Bibles if you need. Bedside tables, kitchen counters, nightstands. 
Invest in your marriages, men. That's the one relationship that, that Satan wants to divide more than anything else. You can break up the whole family that way. Have gospel conversations in your family. Look for opportunities to engage people around you in your neighborhoods with your family. Show your children that you are not afraid or ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ by which you profess salvation in. Be bold. Your wives need you to be bold. Your children need you to be bold. Be bold. Be strong. Be courageous. Wives and mothers, support and encourage your husbands to be bold. Be men of God who are courageously honest and gentle and loving, respectful and honest. Who are intentionally discipling your children in family worship. Encourage them in that. Support them in that. Talk through, to, through a plan of what that can look like. Evangelize your children. The world's not going to do it for you. Single adults, empty nesters, let's speak to both of y'all. Work to advance the gospel with all the energy and resources and time that God has given you that you have left. Partner with the families in this church to help their children know and love and follow Jesus. Model faithfulness to the next generation. Older men, invest in younger men. Younger, older women, invest in younger women. They need you. Children, students, kids, look at me. Don't wait to serve King Jesus until you're old enough. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, don't let anyone despise you for your youth. Set an example to the believers around you. Set an example. Tell your friends about Jesus. So they'll tell their parents about Jesus. So more people can know Jesus and be saved. There's so many dates and there's so many days on our calendars. And if we aren't careful, we will lose sight of the day that's coming. It's the day when Christ comes. And sometimes when there's so much going on in the world like there is right now, it's just a reminder that he is coming. We don't know when. But it's a reminder that he is absolutely coming. And that day should shape every day of our lives. The Lord's given us some practical application from this passage. One theologian once said this, that evangelism, when done in dependence on the Lord, with loyalty to the gospel message and strong words of warning about the judgment of hell, will follow the pattern set on this occasion. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We can't do this without you. We, we cannot. It's scary. It's intimidating. It's uncomfortable. I pray that you would help us by beholding the cross of Christ to take a step towards discomfort 
for the sake of the eternal comfort of the souls around us and for the sake of your glory that you would be worshipped by more and more and more and more. I pray that you would help us to be intentional, proactive, communal, expectant, prayerful, cautious, dependent, urgent, clear, and courageously honest as we go out as your representatives, King Jesus, sent out to usher in your kingdom. Amen.